This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. Here, let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. We are in the third week of our series on Christian joy. And it's gone so far like this. The first week, we said that there is no joy like Christian joy because it is rooted in and it delivers an incomparable hope. Christian joy is rooted in and delivers an incomparable hope. Then last week, we said that the beginning of true joy has to be Jesus. True joy has to start with Jesus because he both shows us pure joy himself and he makes the way through the cross for us to take hold of an ultimate joy or an ultimate happiness. So you won't find true joy anywhere else besides Jesus, but everybody who knows Christ knows true joy. This week, we're asking what about joy when life is hard? about joy when life is hard. Here are two things the Apostle Paul, who wrote a big chunk of the New Testament, says. Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. It's the always that gets me there, right? If he left that out, then you could say, well, let's look around and see if there are reasons to rejoice But when the always is in there, we don't need to look around. We don't need to see if our circumstances are worth rejoicing in because we're always to rejoice. And we put it that way, we see that joy in the Christian life doesn't come from things. So there aren't joy bringing things. How do we do that? How do we rejoice always? Well, the answer is we look to a joy-providing God. So we don't look for joy-giving things. We look to a joy-providing God. Now, a second place, kind of the Apostle Paul illustrates that from his own life when he says in 2 Corinthians 6, what he's doing there is he's writing about everything that he's been doing for people. So Paul poured out his life that people might know Jesus Christ as Savior. But often what he got in return for his life poured out was not gratitude. It was, it was uh, grief. He's attacked. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 6, we're meaning him and his companions, his, his partners in the gospel, we're being slandered. We're being called imposters. Some of us are being beaten. Some of us have been killed. Yet in the midst of that, and, and this is the key, it's in the midst of that, he writes, we're rejoicing. That's 2 Corinthians 6.10. Paul says we are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And so the question is, what is Christian joy like when life is hard? What is Christian joy like when life is hard? And the when is the key word there. 
And it's informed, it's spoken into by that always from rejoice in the Lord always or sorrowful yet always rejoicing. It's not an accident that the Apostle Paul, when he talks about rejoicing, is clear to say we're always rejoicing. So this morning, joy in sorrow is built on the first and the progression, the first couple of the progression of these joy sermons. So again, first, it's, it's Christian joy is unique. And then it's Christian joy is given by and the way to it is through Jesus. How Jesus came to his joy was through the cross, which is full of shame and full of sorrow. That's Hebrews 12 too. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame. So when we ask, what about Christian joy when life is hard? Our answer starts with this. It's possible because we've seen it in Jesus. It's possible because we've seen it in the life of Paul. It's possible for sorrow to lead to joy, but even more distinctively Christian than that, our joy and our sorrow Remember, sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Rejoice in the Lord always. That doesn't exclude times of sorrow. So our sorrow can lead to joy, but even more distinctively Christian than that, can our sorrow and our joy mix together? Maybe a better way of saying that is our sorrow and our joy can converge through Jesus Christ. So that's where we're going this morning. And to see how that happens, we're just going to work our way through Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. I want to read all of that, and then we're going to look at three high points. So Romans 5, 1 to 11, how do our joy and our sorrow converge? So what do we do when life is hard? We continue in joy, even in the midst of sorrow. Romans 5, starting at verse 1. Therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that we, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. 
Uh, when I laid out this sermon series, the question that I began with was early in my thoughts. I, we're told to rejoice. We're going to do a series on joy. I knew that we were going to have to talk about suffering. What do Christians do with joy in the midst of sorrow? And I knew, we'd, I, I knew we couldn't just touch on it. I knew I couldn't just say, you know, at the end of one sermon, well, you know, if you're, if you're suffering or if you're in great grief or sorrow, here's what you do. It's such a, a present circumstance for so many of us that I knew even a whole message wasn't going to be enough, but we would need at least a sermon on this. So I started out with that question. What do Christians do in the midst of, how do Christians have joy in the midst of suffering? What do they do with suffering and joy? How do we put those together? So it started as a what question, kind of morphed into a how question. But then I realized something. To answer the uniquely Christian way to rejoice in the midst of suffering, we can't start with what and how. We can't start with nuts and bolts. We have to first ask why. Why can Christians be joyful in sorrow? If you ask just what, what does God offer? What does, provide, what, what does God provide for Christians? But we don't talk about the why. We're going to try to build a house on sort of a shaky foundation. But if we ask why, why can Christians rejoice in the midst of sorrow? Why can we be sorrowful yet always rejoicing? Then we build a deep foundation that isn't shaken by storms. And that question emerged as I read Romans 5 this last week. This is my main argument for studying your Bible. This is just sort of a plug for how to study your Bible and really how to, how to listen to preaching. Study your Bible, listen to preaching that is expository. Well, that means you start from a Bible passage and you just sort of try to explain it. You sort of expound on it and you let the passage guide where you go with it. If you're only reading the parts of the Bible that you know, or you're only going to your favorite verses. For me, if I'm just preparing to teach our church, but I'm just telling you what I think you need to hear, what we're doing is we're limiting what we're going to hear from God. Because we're essentially saying, only tell me what I already know. But on the other hand, if we're coming to passages of Scripture and we're saying, I'm here ready to read carefully. I'm here ready to, to listen to what's being said. And then I will live accordingly. I will change. I, I will put aside my way and I will take up your way, Lord. Then there are lifetimes worth of truth and glory and help and, and encouragement from God's word that he can pour. It actually says the Holy Spirit here is poured into our hearts and minds. That's how God does it. The Holy Spirit can pour, be poured into us for multiple lifetimes if we come to God's word that way. So I want to open like that, just thanking God, uh, because sometimes I, I don't do this. He allowed me this week to change the question that I've, I'd been asking for three or four weeks as I was preparing, but not just jumping right into those what and how questions, but starting with those why questions. Why are Christians joyful even in the midst of sorrow? And the why makes all the difference, and the why brings us to the how. So Romans 5 
gives us three main answers to why Christians have any business rejoicing when the rest of the world wouldn't see any reason for it. Uh, The first, let me just give you the three and then I'll walk through them. The first is that we have received grace. The second is we have received the Holy Spirit. And the third is we have received a future. We've received grace, we've received the Holy Spirit, and we've received a future. It's not going to seem natural or normal to put suffering and joy together. Most people, most people will expect you to be glad, even to rejoice when they see reasons for it. In other words, when they see good things happening, it's normal to see people happy, rejoicing, having, being in a state of joy. So even when people are not serious about Christian faith, when something good happens, they'll thank God. They'll thank people around them. They'll thank whatever it is that they're believing in. People are thankful when things are good. But as people who see our lives differently than that, we have an atypical, perpetual joy. Again, not based on circumstances, but based on God's continual presence with us. That's the engine of our joy, God's presence with us. So again, through Christ, here are the three things we're going to work through. We've received grace. By God's love, we've received the Holy Spirit. And we've received a future. So first, Christians have received grace. Our first reason for joining the midst of suffering is we've received grace. And this starts by saying, Romans 5, 1, starts by saying, and this whole thing really, I should say, is built on the statement that we have been justified by faith. Nothing works without that first statement. 5.1 is the beginning of a whole new section of this letter, which is probably the single best piece of writing we have in the world. So in Romans, first Paul says, we need to be justified which means we need to be made right with God. Everybody needs to be made right with God. And the reason for that is because all of us sin. On our own, we're not ready to face God. Then the next part of Romans says that we will be satisfactorily justified if and only if we put our faith in Jesus. And now, beginning with chapter 5, we're told what the fruits of justification are. What does God give us in our justification? And this just shows you some of who God is. It's plenty. It would be plenty for him to just say, I've done the work. I've made the sacrifice to save you. That's all you get. But we see beginning in chapter five that not only do we get the saving work of Jesus Christ, but we get blessing on top of that for this life. And the summary statement that Paul gives us is that we have justification and our justification gives us peace with God. And that peace with God implies everything that you think it does. The the opposite of peace is hostility. And that's exactly where we stand with God apart from Jesus. You and I aren't ready for anything to do with God if we're not coming through Jesus. Verse 2 
says that not only do we have peace with God, but we have grace by faith, and now we stand, another way of saying that is we're presently situated that way. This is all telling. If you want to know how you are with God right now, so if you wonder, how am I with God? These two verses tell you everything you need to know. If you have faith with Jesus, if you have faith in Jesus, you have peace with God and you've received grace. If your faith is in anything else, you're standing on your own, weighed down by your sin, and you don't have peace with God. And then there's this, this final clause in, these, in verse 2. Uh, each of these three sections that I'm working through have the same word. We rejoice, and that's the word, in hope of the glory of God. And that word occurs three times in these verses. It's translated as rejoice. But a more literal translation of this word would be something like to boast, to boast in, or to celebrate. So we boast in hope, and our celebration is in the glory of God. So we ask, well, what is that boasting? What does that celebrating in the glory of God have to do with joy in the midst of sorrow? And that's what the next verse tells us. Not only are we boasting in hope, but we're actually boasting in our sufferings. We rejoice in our sufferings. Why would we ever do that? Why would we ever rejoice in our sufferings? Well, we only do that if we understand suffering to be so radically different from the way a person apart or opposed to Christ would understand suffering. This is where it's obvious that the world has nothing to offer to help you and me like Jesus does. So it's that same word, rejoice, knowing that our suffering produces endurance and endurance character and character Here's that word again, hope. So character produces hope. And if we have hope, we'll never be put to shame. And this sounds so countercultural, so radical, so otherworldly. How is it even possible to make the shift from everything that would seem normal to the world to say suffering is bad to say actually suffering is the place from which we draw hope? how God delivers us into his glory. How can we do that? Well, the answer and what the Apostle Paul says, it's because God gives us the Holy Spirit, which is literally putting himself or putting hope inside of, inside of us. So let's talk about this. Uh, this is radical, but it works. The normal hope-suffering dichotomy is torn down by Jesus because through him, suffering doesn't lead to anguish or death, desolation. Suffering leads to hope. And let me show you how. And this is inherently, it's really hard. It's really hard to talk to a big group about sorrow because our sorrows are so different. Every single one of us carries grief in this room. We've all experienced loss. 
Everybody have pain. Everybody has pain. You and I all have a dream that we never saw become a reality. We've all been hurt. We've all had to come to terms with us having hurt other people. Sometimes it's just, we all have the experience of God thinking that God was doing one thing, but then something unexpected happened. And we're just dealing from the fallout of that. So for me to try and enter into that, kind of craft a story, tell you something that, that kind of brings us all together in it, has to be so broad and it has to capture such a a broad range of what suffering can look like. You've got to know that even in a church our size, that's, that's actually impossible. So there's nothing I can say to say, let me just illustrate this for you. Let me just tell you how this works and show you how you can find this in your life. I can't do that. So here's what I can do. I can tell you how this works for me and I can hope that there is enough of a part of it that will make sense for you to put it into your own life too. And even in doing this, I'm conscious of oversharing. Uh, My priorities are always these. I want you to know God. I want Jesus to be the big one in here. And, And I'm trying to minimize whatever might make you see me up here and point you to him. Uh, and so because of that, those two things, one, I, I just can't, the, the, the more specific I get to myself, the less you put it into your own lives. The broader I stay, the more hopefully we each take something away from this. And so if you're wondering why this is so short on details, it's not because I'm trying to be vague. It's not because I I have a hard time being vulnerable. It's the more specific that this is about me, the less I think it will help you. And certainly the more it's about me, the more more it takes our focus away from God's word. So this is intentionally vague on purpose. If you want to know more, I, I am an open book, but just personally, I'll be an open book. Up here, I want this for everybody. So about a dozen years ago, my wife went through a medical emergency that has given way in our lives to a a life-altering change that affects us in just about every conceivable way. I I actually cannot think of a single aspect of our lives that this doesn't touch. And for the most part, it directly impacts them. Uh, So just imagine a pyramid of the most important stuff at the top and then just sort of working its way down, it touches all of it. Like if you pour something out, it will just trickle down and touch everything. So we, we've had, because of this, we've had to learn how to be married in a different way. We've had to learn how to parent with it. Our dreams for what our family looks like are different because of it. We make different plans because of this. And by the way, it's better now, but this is still something that both Holly and I probably think about every day. Most days, it, it, doesn't, it, it, it doesn't dominate most of our days. Most days, we're not bitter or even sad about it. It's just impactful. It kind of is over everything that we do. And I could keep going. If you're wondering, I want to know more specifics. That's the whole point. I'm not giving you specifics because the less specific I am, the more it helps us all. So we sensed, when we were initially walking through that, we sensed this, but we, d- we didn't understand the extent of it until much later. 
but we had real-time choices to make in the midst of, of medical choices, you know, real-world real aspects to our, our daily living. But we had to decide if we were going to trust God and what really that meant, just kind of in, in the context of this, what we had to decide is, are we going to believe that Romans 5, 3 to 5 is true or are we going to look around the world and try to find something better for us? So there was a medical side to things, but that actually wasn't the biggest set of decisions for us. And I'm not minimizing the stress of that, but, but many of the biggest battles, even when you have a medical crisis, even when you have a family crisis, most of the biggest battles are going to be on the spiritual and emotional level. Are you going to let yourself believe these are the questions. Are you going to let yourself believe that God is not good? Are you going to try to trust in your own strength? Are you going to go to despair? Or will you choose to rejoice in the midst of this and trust God that he will take this and make your faith stronger through it and that you'll know more of him because of it? And will you be more convinced that nothing can separate from you from his love and will you ask, will these present sufferings make me long more for heaven? Those are the questions. I want to say that even, even as you make those, even as you try to answer them, that's never going to be a linear process. So I don't want you to hear me saying it's something like you just decide, and once you've sort of picked a path, you just kind of walk that path in a straight line. It's much easier for us now than it was in the, in the days and weeks and, and months, even years after those first couple uh, part of it is God's been so faithful to us that he's just allowed us, we've learned, we've, we've like lifting weights, we've built stronger muscles. Those, those come out in habits and routines that help us to turn worry and anxiety in, into faith in the Lord. But there were plenty of times where we were really deciding, will we lose hope? Will we despair? Will, will we trust God to bring us through this and will we go to him or will we run away from him? And two things come out of these verses. Number one, if you're in Christ, you're never alone. His love has been poured into your heart through the Holy Spirit who's been given to you. So what that means is if you've repented of your sin and you've turned to follow Christ, God lives in you and he is always with you. That alone can make all the difference in sorrow. God sees it, he knows it, and he's with you in it. If you're ever tempted to feel like it's just me versus everything, friend, remember, Christian, remember, it's not you versus everything. It's you and God versus everything, maybe. But that makes all the difference in the world. And second, same thing. If you've repented of your sin and you turn and follow Christ, you can be sure that he's died for you. And the reason that's important is it makes peace with him. You don't need to do something more. Jesus has already done it all. And I say that because one of the most typical things to wonder when you are suffering is whether or not God is doing this to you. Look at me when I say this. If you're wondering whether or not, whether or not God has done this to me, he is not. That's not who he is. He may allow challenging circumstances, 
But these two things are sure. The two things that I'm about to say are sure. He is never the source of your suffering or sorrow. And even that which he does allow, he does not do it to punish you. <clears throat> He's never bitter or vindictive. And we know that because he has every right to be. But instead of punishing sinners, look at verses 6, 7, and 8. He died for them. If you wonder if God is mad at you, verses 6 through 8 are the best gift that God has ever given you. Because the answer right there says no. God is not mad at you. He loves you. He loved you long before you loved him. You might think he can't love me because of my weakness or my ungodliness or my sin. And if you think that you are wrong, it was at that place when you were weakest, when you were most sinful, when you had turned from him that he shows you the extent of his love. He trades his life for yours. There's no greater love than that. There's no greater gift than that. So if you wonder, has God done this to me? No, he's saved you from it if you turn and follow him. Holly and I had to decide, are we going to believe those promises of God And that meant, are we going to rejoice in him in the midst of these sufferings? Sometimes that was passive. Are we going to refuse bitterness? Other times it had to be so active. We have have to do this less now, but it's still there sometimes. My memories of it are really vivid. There were more times than I could count where we would be at a place of feeling like we, we, like we either have two choices. We either give up or get angry or we rejoice and we praise God. And I mean that quite literally. I remember moments thinking, are we going to be angry right now? Are we going to you know, raise our fists to heaven and shake it and walk away? Or are we going to start to sing worship songs? We weren't, gonna, we weren't just going to go watch a show. We weren't going to get a snack. It was either we shake our fist at God or we start to sing his praises. We read Psalm 27 more times than I will ever know. Unless that's your Psalm 2, I've read Psalm 27 more times than anybody in the room. We clung to that. And oh, I praise God in that time that my joy in him was not based on my feelings because they're so erratic. I was all over the place. I praise him that joy in Christ is rooted so deep. Remember the parable that Jesus told about houses built on either sand or rock? You know what's common in the parable? Storms came for both. Storms come. So are you rooted deep or are you rooted shallowly? You have the Holy Spirit. You're never alone. God's with you. He hasn't done it to you. He saved you from it. The last rejoice in these verses is verse 11. We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Uh, if you want to see the full weight of the mercy and the reconciliation of, of this reconciliation, go back to verse 10. 
That ends by saying we are reconciled and we shall be saved by his life. Shall be. So to understand the totality of this, you have to know the difference between how sometimes we in the church use the word saved and how it's often functioning in the New Testament. So for most of us, saved functions more like the word the Apostle Paul started with. He's already used it, justified. So that means when we say saved, really what, we're, what we mean is our sins have been paid for and the verdict, our verdict with God has gone from guilty to a full pardon. But in the New Testament, the totality of the word saved often operates broadly, far more broadly than we use it. So it has in mind the complete work of Christ. Salvation in the New Testament has in mind the complete work of, of Christ. So for God to save New Testament-wise, he chooses from before the foundation of the world. He calls before you are a Christian. He leads you to repentance. Then he justifies you. you spend, he spends the rest of your life sanctifying you. And at the end of your life, at the second coming of Christ, he glorifies you. That's what saved is like in the New Testament. And so if somebody said, are you saved or being saved? You could rightly answer yes. In other words, both. I have been saved. God's going to do all that work, but I'm still in the process of being saved. Do you get that? So on the timeline, none of us are finished yet. There is salvation still yet to come. And that's, when, that's what the apostle Paul means when he says we shall be saved by his life. Through the suffering work of Christ, we're justified. Through the resurrection of Christ, we have a guarantee of this promise. And then one day we'll be fully and finally saved. But that hope is so sure that Paul is able to say, even though it comes later, we've begun to take hold of it now. So we've received reconciliation. We're in Christ, but not as full as we one day will be. We're reconciled to God now, but we're not fully redeemed. And that's where we can draw the fortitude to suffer with joy. Because we're in the midst of a process that's going to involve struggle. And part of that struggle is our sorrow. And it's not done yet. So we have to understand that we're still going through the salvation process. And part of that is God using it to accomplish his salvation. It will one day be finished, but it's not yet. That's the complicated way of saying it. Here's the plain way. We can rejoice while sorrowful because our present circumstances are not our full end. Even during suffering, God is holding out a glorious hope. That's the why. That's the why. Why can Christians rejoice when there's sorrow? Here's three answers. Because we have grace, which means we're no longer at odds with him. We have the Holy Spirit, so we know we're not enduring suffering alone. We're not being punished by God. And lastly, because God has prepared for us a future. Our present suffering is not the end. And do you know what I realized while I was working through that? I started looking for the house, but then I realized we needed to first ask for the whys. But after doing that, I, I've seen really the, the whys give us the house. I can tell you to rejoice in suffering by doing 
things with God, but they only make sense if you know what God is already doing in your life. So here are now the hows. They're just, they're just kind of they're birthed out of the whys. So here are the hows. How do Christians rejoice in suffering, in sorrow? Number one, rejoice in suffering by pressing in to God. You may think that he's rejected you or you need to run from him. But this goes back to the why. Press into him because he's made the way, because he's made peace with you. God has made peace with you because he wants to be near to you and he wants, you to, bring, he wants to bring you to him. So press into him. When you press into God, all you are doing is fulfilling your end of what God has always been doing for you. So press into God. How do you do that? Just don't run away. Bring your suffering to him. Say, God, I need you. There's nowhere else that I might go. I am suffering. I'm bringing, I'm going to get near to you. And we'll talk about a couple more things about how to do that in a minute. Rejoice in suffering. This is number two. Rejoice in suffering by living in the spirit. Uh, the Bible promises these kinds of things when you have the spirit. When you have the spirit, you become a spiritually sensitive, spiritually formed person. So think of just one big example, the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. That's what the Spirit does. You need to know that this is, this is true of everybody. Suffering will either make you more like that or it will make you less like that. One common thing to suffering is that it will not leave you exactly the same as you were before it you will be changed by your suffering. So you're going to become a better person or you become a worse one. Everybody does. Having the spirit with you, in you, gives you the hope and the possibility of it making you a better person. So how do you press into God? Same thing is true in this way. When you have the Spirit, you press into God through prayer because like, for instance, it says in Romans 8, even when you don't know how to pray, the Spirit intercedes for you. He'll pray for you when you don't know how to pray for yourself. Or, here's the big or, you can reject the work of the Spirit and your thoughts just go in the opposite direction. So press into God, live by the Spirit, finally rejoice in sorrow, because God's given you a future. God is saving you. One day he will have saved you, have saved you. And much of this life is about getting you ready for salvation. So under the providence of God, he's using suffering to refine you, not to destroy you. Such a common lie that we're told from the forces of spiritual darkness. You are suffering because God is angry with you. No, believer in Christ, you are suffering because God is refining you. Suffering shows us our hope in a unique and profound way. I know that because that's what it did for Jesus. He looked forward to what he wanted, which was our redemption. 
and he saw that it had to come through the pain and shame of the cross. And Hebrews says that is what that joy he endured and and his suffering was for, for the joy set before him. So sorrow has a way of clarifying things for us. Go through tragedy and you will very quickly realize what is important to you, right? There are things that you think you need and if you are in the midst of tragedy, you will trade every single one of them for a lottery pick of ending the suffering that you're presently facing. That's how suffering leads us to hope. It points us to what our full joy really is. And I'm not saying that'll be easy. But I am saying it will be these three things. It will be a way for you to experience the grace of God. It will be a place for you to find the near, ever-presence of the Spirit. And it will be a vision of sure hope that God will one day end it and we'll never suffer again. Let's pray together. God, I pray for each of us in the room that we would see what we suffer and our sorrow not as an accusation that you have abandoned us, but as a guarantee of a promise that you are with us. And when we suffer, may it lead us to hope. And our present Father, I pray for those here now, listening now, who are suffering beyond what is typical. Perhaps in a way that they have never suffered before. Maybe they wondered if it was time to give up and give in. I pray that you would graciously draw them close. Bear hug them so that they, even in their best efforts, would not be able to wiggle away. That is such a grace. I thank you for our church. Nobody in here has to suffer alone for two reasons. Because we can have the Spirit if we put our faith in you and because you've given us a church. So when one is sorrowful, we are sorrowful together. No greater love has anyone than this that he would die, trade himself for us. So you through Christ have showed us the full extent of your love. You have not abandoned us. You've done everything necessary to bring us close. In that hope we rejoice. Amen. Our Savior is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words. Building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about this vision and our hope for our neighborhood, visit us online at osefc.org.